and reading from the Apocalypse of St. John the Divine, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. Let's direct our attention now to the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With it, you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be jealous, zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're at the last of the seven churches of Asia to whom John writes as he receives his dictation from Jesus Christ himself. This letter, the last one, doesn't bear any strong commendation, but it's been often said by some people that this letter probably resembles the modern church, at least in the West and in America, more than any of the others. And I would really quibble with that because I think all of them apply immensely to the churches of not just the West, but the churches of the whole world. And I think they specifically reply or apply, and I've hinted at this from time to time, I have not borne down on it, but I think it applies to PCA denomination and PCPC church. And I think this one today does too. That we need to be reflective and introspective about where we are spiritually as individuals and as a church, as a denomination, and then as the larger church worldwide, the church universal the true Catholic Church with a small c, Catholic Church, universal church. So the seventh church here that's addressed, it's the last in the circuit. We've come back down now to the southern. We're more toward the central part of Asia as far as the geographic location. And once again, the Lord introduces himself and addresses himself to the people and identifies himself in, once again, a threefold manner. And he calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of creation. I think we know our Christology well enough to know what Jesus is referring to, but the reference might be just a little remote. Uh, 
When Jesus says, I am the amen, what is he saying? Well, the word amen is a Hebrew word. It's not translated. It's like the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is not translated. It's right out of the Hebrew, transliterated right into the English, and we say it all the time. And so it is with the word amen. It's a Hebrew word, and it means yes. It means affirmative. It means so be it. Be it that way. It means truly and truthfully. It means authentically. It is used by Jesus when he says, as translated over into the Aramaic and then into the Greek, verily, verily. Jesus is saying, I'm the verily, verily one. I'm the true one. I'm the yes. And the Bible tells us that in Christ himself, all of the prophecy has its amen. In other words, Christ himself in his person, his work, is the fulfillment of all the promises and the prophecies of the plan and the work of God. They are in Jesus, yes, affirmative, so be it. That's who Jesus is. I would remind us this morning that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God talked about in the Old Testament by way of promise after promise, prophecy after prophecy with respect to his kingdom, his eternal people, his worldwide family, and not to a mere ethnic people descended from Abraham. It is in Christ that all the promises and the prophecies apply. Also, the, the uh, designation, and we've seen this one before, is the faithful and true witness. It's the one who is the true aletheos, the truthfulness of God. He's the true witness. The word witness, we've said, is martyr. So much of what we say this morning is kind of a summary and a wrap-up of what we've seen so much in these two chapters about the Lord and about His church. That He is the authentic, the dependable, the one that remains faithful, and the one in whom we can depend and upon whom we must trust for our everlasting salvation. There's no other friend that sticks closer than a brother than Jesus Christ. It is to him we must come. It is him we must confess before men. It is him we must testify about everywhere we go. The true and the faithful witness. And the beginning of creation. The passage that Pete led us in just a moment ago out of Paul's writings, this great Christological passage has references to the firstborn of creation. Other passages refer to the firstborn and the first of all that God has done. And that's because this word in the language is the word arche, which means first or the beginning but it also means the chief, the first or the chief, the captain. And that's who Jesus is. He is not only the first in order, in preeminence, but he is the first of a file. He's the file leader, according to Hebrews, that is leading a people who are following him, walking in his footsteps. 
And so Christ identifies himself. Sounds like Christ's ministry when he was on earth. These are the things he taught us to think about himself. But he says, as he does in other places, I know your works. So speaking to the church now in Laodicea, he says, I know your works. And I know something about them. They're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I will just spit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out. Now, without being too um, symbolic and reading too much into it, we might look at these extremes of hot and cold with respect to, say, water. It is the cold water from the springs, from the fountains, in the oases that bring the living water. It is often Jesus Christ himself said that he, by his spirit, is a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And it's the cold water that brings the life and the refreshing. But it's the hot water that brings the healing, the mineral water, the water of the ancient spa, the waters of healing and the waters that are full of the minerals and all. Jesus Christ represents both the cold water, genuine life-giving, the hot water, that which is cleansing and healing and restorative to our souls. And he says to the church of Laodicea, you're really neither one. You're not really teaching and preaching and living out the living water. Neither are you representing to your neighbor's healing water. Hot water, cleansing water, purging water, purifying water. And he said, I just have no use for you. You're not getting it done at either pole on the hot side or the cold side. That's sobering. And then he gives a little bit of analysis as to maybe why. He says, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. This is a, oh, by the way, the amen is a quotation from Isaiah 65, 16. I mean, I've told you all this comes right out of the Old Testament. Uh, the faithful and true witness, we talked about that before. But let me just read you a, a passage from the Old Testament. Book of Hosea. Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Ephraim, kingdom of Israel. And so he says this in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 12, Hosea. A merchant, remember that notion of merchant. A merchant in whose hands are false balances... You remember that's the abomination. There are several abominations in the Bible. These are egregious sins in the sight of God. A false balance was one. Homosexuality was one. Lying lips was another abomination to the Lord. And then there's another one, interestingly enough. We don't ever hear it preached. Those that sow discord among the brethren are an abomination. And there's about three or four more. You can look them up. But this abomination is those that have in their hands the false balances. In other words, they're doing fraudulent trade, fraudulent commerce. He loves to oppose. Ephraim has said, 
Ephraim is the capital of the northern kingdom. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Did you catch that? This is directly what Jesus is saying about the church at Laodicea. You're saying about yourself, church, that you're rich. You've made yourself prosperous. He says here, I found for myself riches. And therefore, you say, in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Because I have gained this prosperity, which is a covenant blessing from the Lord, I tend to think that maybe I am righteous. Maybe I have no sin. Maybe I'm upright. Because look at all of this wonderful blessing. I wonder if a church that is sitting literally right on the city limits of a town, which is the fifth wealthiest zip code in North America. I wonder if a church that sits right there that has everything the eye can behold and admire might be blinded in its self-analysis. If that church might say to itself, look, we have the most beautiful of buildings. We have the most fantastic uh, array of staff. We have the most fabulous of choir and music. And on and on you go down the list. And we got Bible teachers. Oh, we're full of Bible teachers, our church. We're a Bible preaching church. And have this analysis of where we are, but yet be deceived and be blinded. And that's what Jesus said about the church at Laodicea. You make up your mind whether he's talking about PCPC. But here is what he says is the actual analysis, the way he sees it. Said, you say that you're rich, you have need of nothing, you're self-satisfied, you have all the trappings, not realizing, not realizing. In other words, you're not realistic. You haven't taken a real, proper, measured, incisive, critical, I'd say, judgment in the sense of a critique, in a good sense of a judgment of yourself. You don't realize your own spiritual condition. You look at yourself and you say, we're rich, we're prosperous, we're beautiful, we are cutting edge, we are avant-garde. This is what the Lord, in his viewpoint, says about the church. You are wretched and pitiable. Wretched. And pitiable. In other words, people that really know would look at you and have pity at poor church. They're so rich, they think they're therefore spiritual. They think they're godly. They think they're really on mission in doing things. They think they're really accomplishing the kingdom of God. And some poor downtrodden Christian will say, they don't understand. I pity them, really. They've been blinded by the glitter of their own gold. So the Lord offers this gracious invitation. He says, buy from me. You're merchants, you've prospered, you've made money with a good margin. In fact, with a false balance, you may have hedged the margin a little. 
charge the customer a little more, avoid a few taxes, pay your employees a little bit less. What does that do to the bottom line? Increases the equity and the profit. That's what they were making their P&L statements look like. And they weren't looking at what was really going on in their hearts. So the Lord said, if you want true riches, buy from me gold, tried in fire, that is in persecution, refined by the fires. In other words, look to me for true riches, true gold, silver seven times in the fire has it been refined in gold. And the Lord calls them. And by the way, one of the great industries of Laodicea was banking money. The Lord says, you're poor and you're blind. Buy for yourself salves for your eyes so that your eyes may be open that you may see. One of the most prominent miracles Jesus did in his time on earth was to open blinded eyes. And it was just spelled out very, very significant in that it showed the Lord would bring light. He was the light of the world. He would bring, bring, bring light to their understanding and they would open their blinded eyes so that they could see truth, so they could see the glory of God, so they could see the gospel, so they could see the splendor of spiritual things. And so the opening of the blind eyes is one of the things that the prophets, Micah and the other prophets, said would be a sign of the coming of Messiah. He would come and open your blinded eyes. Well, the Lord did that physically to Bartimaeus and others, but spiritually is how it is really operated by the Lord. He opens our blind eyes so that we can see and be realistic and realize where we stand spiritually before him. Interestingly enough, the town of Laodicea had a, a giant medical facility and its specialty was ophthalmology, the eyes there in that ancient world. And he says, you're not only poor, you need true riches, you're not only blind, you need your eyes opened, but he said you're naked and you need to be clothed. And he tells them to buy. He gives them a shopping list. Buy gold, buy salve, and buy white garments. Things they could buy in the marketplace. By the way, Laodicea was a town famous for its fabrics and for its garments. So the Lord said, get your shopping list and go to town. Get wealth. There's a lot of banks here, but let's think about it spiritually. Open your eyes. There's a medical facility here specializing in eyes and blindness. And clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with the white garments and cover your shame. We've talked about the white garments before. They symbolize the purity. They are actually the undergarments that were worn of white linen by the priest, which were separated and holy unto the Lord. And that's what this calls for. And the Lord says something very gentle. Up till now, I would think it's been rather harsh. And listen to what the Lord says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son that is his. If you're the Lord, you're going to feel from time to time the chastening of the Lord, the rebuke of the Lord. He's not here to hurt. He's not here to destroy. He's not here to discourage and to put down and to lay low. He's here to lead us to correction and to repentance. That's what he says. He tells them to do two things. Repent 
And these sins have been pointed out to them and their consciences now have been awakened to their sinfulness. He says, repent. And then he says, take on zeal, be zealous. Not lukewarm anymore, not half-hearted, not just in name only, but really take on a zeal for the house of the Lord. The Old Testament prophet had it. Jesus had it when he uh, cleansed the temple. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. The Lord rolled up his sleeves and went to work, rectifying, correcting, purging, rebuking. And that's what we are to do. And then in verse 20 is a beautiful verse. Most of you have memorized it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock is a picture out of the Song of Solomon. Chapter 5, verse 2, where the lover is knocking at the door of the potential bride. And she hears the knocking. And that's what it is here. This is the bridegroom knocking on the door of the church. The church at Laodicea. The church in Park Cities. Knocking upon the heart's door. And if anyone, he says, if any man will open the door, I will come in and what? I'll have communion. I will sup with him. I will eat with him. I will fellowship with him. He can enjoy the kononia, the fellowship. And that fellowship is spelled out in scripture. It's not a light thing at all. In fact, the fellowship is best described by Paul when he says that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. The koinonia with Christ is a koinonia of great joy, great freedom, great liberty, incredible rejoicing. But it's also a fellowship of suffering. And the Lord has always tried to toughen up his people. He told them there'd be persecution. He has always tried to get his troops disciplined. And you don't have discipline without true discipleship. They both mean a training, a teaching, but with rigor. How rigorous is our disciple making amongst us? And then he has the final two that he says to all of them. One is the reward for the conqueror, the one that overcomes. And remember how we overcome? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. But those that conquer, he says, they'll sit on the throne. He said, I sit on the throne with God the Father. I share that throne. We see the resurrected and reigning Christ in the book of Revelation all the way through. He's resurrected. He's enthroned. He's reigning. We're not waiting to crown him king someday, as we may sing about in some of our heretical songs he was crowned and is crowned at his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement. He is now the reigning king. This is what the kingdom looks like at this moment in eternity. It'll look different when we go from the church uh, militant to the church triumphant and then to the eternal state. But right now, our king calls us to be sufferers, to be witnesses, to be undergoers in order that we might become overcomers. And then finally, the hearing formula. If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says. 